are listening to Changing Careers, a podcast about how MBA careers are changing and how MBAs change their careers. I am Conrad Chua. Today's guest is Michael Birdsall. After his MBA, Michael started a company that became a platform to connect students and tutors. Recently, he sold that company. Today, you have the opportunity to understand the journey from building a company to deciding it is time to sell. First, I asked Michael, when did he think he could be an entrepreneur? Right. So uh, for me, entrepreneurship wasn't so scary because my father had started his own company and my grandfather had started his company, so I'd seen it before. But I actually joined an MBA in the hope of becoming more of a corporate employee and having that security because I'd seen sort of the ups and downs in my family as a result of being an entrepreneur. So uh, I think it was only when I was in the MBA taking an entrepreneurship class that I started to reflect, you know, this suits me much better. Talk us through the events that led you to starting your company. So when I, prior to coming to Judge, I had been a DMET tutor and it was a good job. Uh, it, I did pretty well financially off of it, I'd say. But the, um, the bit was I didn't feel like I was building something. I felt like it was a very much based on what uh, my personal value was. So there'd be there'd be nothing to sell in the future when I stop. It would just end. So the the bit is uh, that's why I wanted to become more of a corporate employee and and make more money, have more security. So uh, so when I joined the entrepreneurship program, they had us do this exercise of coming up with um, uh, some business ideas. And I basically came up with a tutoring platform of something like LinkedIn, but for tutors. And, um, and as a result of that, the two things they, that we had to do in the first exercise was go out and research the size of the market and how quickly it was growing. And so when I did that, um, there had just been some research that had been published that the, said the size of the market was $120 billion and that it was growing at 16% a year. And in terms of the market that you'd look for, to have a startup in. It was pretty much right on. What was that market? The, the market for tutoring? Yeah, so the initial market we went after was the UK market for tutoring, which is a test prep for GCSEs and A-levels. I know your audience is probably international. So in the UK, there are, are exams that children take when they're 16, and again, when they're 18 or 19. And those exams pretty much determine what university they'll get into. So parents tend to spend uh, quite a lot, around 10 billion US, uh, somewhere around 7 billion pounds on preparation for those. So we thought that that would be a really great market to go after initially with the idea of uh, building a platform for parents to source great tutors on. Uh, After that, we saw lots of scope for international expansion because uh, tutoring um, is, is a growing phenomenon globally. And I guess it's it's down to parents really wanting to feel like they can give their children um, a better chance at success in life by providing maybe a little bit extra tuition when, when they're students. As a child, I was made the target of tutoring by my parents for math, <laughs> English, and Mandarin. How does a tutor stand out to students or parents on the platform? This is a super cool question, and it took us a long time to figure it out, uh, especially right where it's all, it's all just stuff. So what we found eventually was a tutor can distinguish themselves by 
uh, going back to former clients and getting them to write recommendations. So we had this thing that we call spontaneous booking on the platform, which is when someone would come on and just book time with a tutor without sending them a message first. So normally the process would be that a, a parent would come on the platform, they'd send a tutor a message, they'd message back and forth and sort of agree, and then um, they'd book, the parent would book time with the tutor. But there were tutors who would just, a parent would come on the platform and they'd just book their time immediately, no messaging back and forth. And we realized that those tutors were the ones who had eight or nine, so it wasn't that many, but it was eight or nine uh, recommendations posted on the platform from, uh, from other uh, parents who'd been happy in the past. So that, that was the way to distinguish yourself was by getting these reviews and recommendations. So it was like Yelp for tutors. Yeah, Yelp for tutoring, I think, would work pretty well, <laughs> in fact. Um, yeah, I think other than that, price isn't really a good way to distinguish yourself. Uh, it's what you might think, and it's what many tutors would try, is maybe lowering their price or something like that. But I, I don't think parents were very concerned about price when it came to uh, preparation for exams that are going to have a big impact on their children's lives. You have a fascinating story about the name of your company, Two Sigmas. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I guess Two Sigmas is something of a technical name, so it doesn't really seem to equate to tutoring. But um, when I was a tutor, I, I did a lot of research uh, just in education and good ways to teach people. And uh, I found this paper published by a guy named Benjamin Bloom, who was an educational psychologist in 1984. And in it, he talked about the impact of private tutoring versus just uh, having a regular classroom teacher. And what he, what he basically found was that uh, children who, who have the same ability level, but with one group having a private tutor, that, that group would end up performing two standard deviations above uh, uh, the average of the group that didn't have a private tutor. And so that was really, really interesting to me. And you may know that a standard deviation is represented by uh, lowercase sigma in Greek. So we became two sigmas to represent the advantage of private tutoring. Uh, what's really funny about it is as machine learning and everything grew sort of after that, there's now a hedge fund called Two Sigma without the S. And uh, eventually that caused a little bit of confusion because we weren't really focused on machine learning, but uh, there was this very large group that had a the same sort of technical name. Isn't there a school of thought, though, that says tutoring does not educate students, but just trains them to be better test takers? What's your view on that? No matter how you measure people, people will perform based on how you measure. Um, so if, if you can construct better tests, then tutoring will get the outcome that you want. If you construct a test that's multiple choice, then just prepare people for a multiple choice exam. You will, of course, teach children or teach adults and if it's the GMAT, right? You'll teach them about the multiple choice questions. I, I don't think tutoring is the problem so much as it is the, the way the tests have been constructed. If, if you want children to learn this sort of holistic material, then uh, give them a test that gives them an opportunity to express their holistic views. How is the growth in Two Sigmas? Yeah, so Two Sigmas, it started off uh, quite slow. Um, we we sort of went out and we did okay in the UK market. Um, and then we realized that our customer acquisition cost exceeded our customer lifetime value. is in a great position to be in. And when was this? 
So that would be in 2014. So to sort of set up the timeline, I, I left Judge at the end of 2013, and I had raised a little bit of money, uh, enough to sort of get a proof of concept up in terms of a website. And then uh, in 2014, we started trading, and uh, we spent some money on advertising to attract people. We found it was quite expensive to attract the students. We weren't making, as a platform, we were only taking about 12% of the of the revenue from from the tutoring classes and it wasn't enough to justify the marketing cost. So so from there we decided to work uh, with Chinese companies um, and we would provide the teacher and they'd find the student and that turned out to be a better way to grow the company. So that was in 2014. How did Two Sigmas grow after you switched customer segments? Yeah, so after we switched the customer segment, uh, in our first year in China, we probably grew about 30%. And then the next year in China, we grew about 300%. And then we had another sort of 300% on that. <laughs> and, and then we sort of, I think we were part of something of a bubble, uh, but we were growing really, really quickly. So we went from sort of three employees to uh, 12 employees within like six months. At the time, you were still based in the UK, while all this explosive growth in revenue was in China. How did you manage that growth? Yeah, so it, it turned out, I think the UK was an advantageous place for us to be. Uh, the primary sort of tutors and teachers we attracted, were, they were in the United States. And then the, the students were primarily in China. And from China, uh, from Beijing time to sort of New York time, there's a 12-hour time zone difference. So it actually made it, depending on the time of the year. So the, it really made it difficult for, say, a Chinese company to have employees working in, and supporting teachers in the U.S. So where it was quite good for us was we were sort of in between both time zones. In the beginning of the day, we could talk to people in China and uh, sort things out with our partners in terms of their needs. And by the end of the day, we could have, uh, have, be talking to the teachers in the United States. And be working things out there. So actually, the UK was quite useful in terms of putting together the Chinese in the US market. That's some amazing growth numbers. How did you manage the growth in people, systems, and processes? Yeah, so we made some early decisions that helped with systems and processes. So one of the things we did, we, um, we sort of built really strong data processes around everything we did. So we built a scalable system from the beginning uh, in terms of it, it wouldn't matter how many teachers we were attracting or how many clients we had. So what we did have to do is, is hire for things like sales and hire for customer support because those are things we couldn't build into, into our website, right? So, so that became quite difficult because we went from being a company that was primarily ruled by tech to a company that needed to now have the interest of salespeople who, um, who say are much more, they're much more intuitive about the way that they approach the world, uh, and customer support people who are getting direct feedback from teachers all the time. So it was a bit of a culture change that was really hard to deal with by going from a primarily tech-focused company to a company that um, that had a lot of a lot more intuitive people coming into it. So how did you balance this change in the company culture? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think uh, I would probably say poorly is is the quick the quick answer. It it was hard for me to 
to give up on the culture that that we initially had. So, so I think I went back and forth between wanting to keep the old culture that was really tech focused, and then seeing the need for the new culture. So, so at first I was quite resistant to what the salespeople wanted to do, and then uh, I find myself sort of. Um, saying, no, 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 I just need to blanketly trust them. And, and neither one was the right answer, right? So it, it, I needed to really spend more time figuring out how to integrate the two pieces of the business to work closer together. That was, that was a, bit, a bit of a challenge for me. I can't say that I did it well. If I'm... Many MBAs will take on roles where they have to lead different functions. In your experience working at the tech and sales sides, what are warning signs that things were not going well? Yeah, that's a great question. So there were, I would say when, when you hear, when you sit through one conversation with a, the tech team and the sales team and you sat there and you have heard both sides and you come away with one view of what's happened and then you catch up with the leaders of the sales team and the tech team separately, and you realize that they've left that meeting with completely different views to not only your own, but to each other. At that moment, you realize that there, there are significant misunderstandings, even in the, the way we use words. So it, it was really the, the challenge for me was first recognizing not only did people not have my view when, when we left the meeting, they didn't even share views with each other. And that was a warning sign. Was this down to how the different business units were looking at each other or difficulties in how they communicate with one another? Yeah, so I think I think it was not, say, an interpersonal problem. I think it was down to something I'd call sort of precision of thought and precision of speech. So I think salespeople um, like I said, are intuitive, and they're trying to get their idea across, right? So the way that they explain things is however they think they might get their idea across, at least in my experience. Whereas the tech team always wanted to make things very explicit, because that was their job, essentially, is to put things into code, which has to be quite explicit. So if a salesperson was talking to them, and it was in a way that was imprecise in their mind, they'd leave the meeting feeling like they didn't know what, what had just happened, right? And on the other hand, if a tech person says something that's very precise, then a sales guy uh, will take it, that meaning to be quite generalized. And it isn't generalized. It's a very specific meaning to, to the salesperson. So I think the ultimate problem comes down to just how specific the meaning is of the words that are being chosen by the two different teams. What were some of the tough spots during the growth of Two Sigmas? So I think um, the cultural bit was, was tough, uh, the, the one I just mentioned. The other bits that were tough was a lot of travel. So for myself, I probably had 20 different business trips to China uh, over the course of four years. Uh, this, this, I think, was quite tough because um, I'm away from the office, I'm away from my family, and I'm meeting with lots of clients in China. So it feels good in terms of business success. But you have two, two sort of things here, or at least I, I did. One, I was constantly worried about what's going on back at the office while I'm away. And then, uh, of course, the time away from your family as you're being more successful might not 
feel that successful if you're spending much more time away from your family. So for example, there was a, I think a May and a June, uh, probably in 2017 or so, where I was only home for two weeks out of, out of the two months. How did you balance the family and the company commitments? Yeah, that's a really good question. So initially, I, I don't think I did a good job. So in the first few years, I didn't take holidays. Uh, I worked weekends. I just sort of tried to tried to pour everything into it and um, and tried to just spend time with my with my wife and children in the morning. Uh, after after a few years, uh, I I realized I had to set aside time. So for example, Sundays, uh, I'd set aside where I'd turn my phone off. Uh, I wouldn't touch any technology for the day, and I just make that time for my family. Uh, I think that was really quite key. Um, the other thing is to to work in uh, time to read to the children every night and just make that a sort of sacred thing that no matter what's going on, I'll have a half hour to read to the children every night. But I, I think it's something I learned by first getting it wrong, realizing how much I was missing it, and then taking steps to fix it. Michael, you've just sold two Sigmas. Why did you do this? I think the time was right. Um, the, the market in China sort of reached a peak in terms of what it was going to ever do. And then it started to contract a bit because of the funding environment for our clients in China. So we were working with companies that were themselves startups. And so they needed venture funding to, to keep going. So uh, the market that we were primarily focused on was contracting a bit. And we'd built some interesting tech that could be applied to uh, finding teachers and tutors for any company that was, that was in this space. And I think if we'd waited too much longer, these companies would have developed their own tech that was similar to ours. It was sensible for us to sell to them before they did. Um, and I think that the, the market that we were focused on was no longer the growing fast market that, that could support what we wanted to do. I was ultimately left with the decision of do we pivot, try to find a different market, or do we sell? And from my point of view, the effort of a pivot, because we'd pivoted sort of once before from the UK market to the Chinese market, the effort of a pivot was probably too risky and not worth it compared to just selling the tech outright. So we, we managed to sell the company on the strength of the tech. What did you feel emotionally going through the sales process? Yeah, so I would say during the sale process, because it's quite a long process actually to sell a company, um, I was very happy from the point of view of just the deal. So figuring out how am I going to get investors a good return, I was quite uh, was quite happy with the idea that I was fulfilling on my promise to my investors. So people had believed in me. We'd built a company. The investors were going to get a return, and it was my way of saying I appreciated their their trust in me. Right. The, um, the bit where it started to get scary was toward the end, where I realized as part of this, I'll become part of a much bigger group. I won't have as much autonomy as I had. And so I started to realize those bits that I'd lose uh, by, by selling the company. But um, since, since joining the company I've joined, it was a pretty good culture fit uh, in terms of everybody just wants to do what's right for education. So, uh, so I think those fears were just sort of uh, my own fears of not having been an employee for so long. I hadn't been an employee for seven years. So uh, it, it made it a bit scary. So I'd say ups and downs, uh, but generally knowing that I was doing the right thing by my investors were the, the perks, the, the ups. 
uh, and a little bit of a fear about what comes next, which I suppose anyone has in a change situation, is a bit of the down. There are MBAs who want to start a company. Not all of them will succeed. But to the few who do and find themselves in a position like yourself to sell their company, what advice do you have for them? I would say to remember that it isn't the end. There's so much that comes after the exit that's based on what you've done. So you have to sort of take stock in the idea that you've done something that that's different and exceptional in some way. You've seen the entire business process, and it might be small. It might have been a small company that you ended up selling, but you've seen all the steps. So it's very interesting is what comes after, because the, there, there are opportunities that sort of come out of the woodwork when people hear that you've done it that you might not you, you might not know about. So I would say you might not know what's going to come specifically right after you sell, but there will be lots of good things that happen. So don't think of it as the end. It's really the beginning of something that's quite a lot of uh, interesting opportunity. What was one thing you learned building Two Sigmas that they did not teach you in business school? So, that, yeah, this is a hard question because uh, I spend a lot of time sort of thinking about the mistakes I made in the company and how, how to improve things. What I realized is I found myself going back to my old MBA notes and the, the MBA program has so much uh, it teaches you in such a short amount of time. I would say that I can't pinpoint a single thing that wasn't mentioned or wasn't taught, right? But, um, but it's rather knowing when to apply it. When, when is it relevant? When should you be thinking about your team? When should you be thinking about corporate finance issues? When should you not be thinking about corporate finance issues? All of, that, all of the things that you learned uh, in the MBA were useful. Um, I think if, if I think about the one thing that they sort of couldn't or didn't teach in, in an MBA program is just uh, how to work a lot of hours. Even that, I think they made you do, but they didn't explicitly teach it. <laughs> because there are, there are definitely a lot of 20-hour-a-day weeks when you're getting a company started. I think the, the most important thing uh, is probably that I didn't spend enough time on, the judge did teach, but I can only sort of realize that retrospectively is, is to focus on the team. Uh, spend most of your time, after you get your idea up and running, to shift your focus quite quickly to the team uh, and the people you're working with and culture and step back from technology, step back from finance a bit. Uh, let, let your accountant handle finance for a while. Uh, have a CTO who handles tech and for you to just focus on the team, I think. It's not that Judge didn't teach that. Judge taught that, as a matter of fact. I think they spent a lot of time working on teams. It's that I wish I'd thought about it more and not so much just retrospectively. You mentioned working those 20-hour days. What's your advice for entrepreneurs who have to work those hours during a certain period? To build the routine of it. So I think people are amazing for what they can, they can accomplish when they have a routine. And so if you're, if you reach this point where you're growing a lot, you maybe can't hire people in or during the sale process where you're getting questions from accountants and lawyers all the time is to have a routine. So if you just sort of um, 
try to respond to everything whenever you get the message on your phone, then someone else is determining your routine. But if you sort of say, I'm going to wake up every day at 4 a.m., I'm going to focus on emails first, I won't touch my emails again until noon, and I'll focus on the tasks between then, that, that routine is going to be really important. And also, to I know you're not sleeping a lot if you're having 20-hour days, but continue to exercise, right? It's like a restart to your day. So have a routine, have some exercise in it, and don't let the pace of emails or Slack messages or something interrupt your routine. Make it yours, because that's the only way you'll be able to continue that, that pace for so long. That was Michael Birdsall talking about his experience in building and then selling Two Sigmas. Entrepreneurship is full of ups and downs, and it is tempting to just focus on the ups. I'm very grateful that Michael shared both sides of his experience with us, and this will give some encouragement to the entrepreneurs amongst you. In an earlier podcast, I talked about the importance of getting a good night's sleep, and I definitely can't hack a 20-hour day anymore. But I recognize that there will be times when you might have to do that for your work. If you're in that situation, remember Michael's advice about finding a routine and getting enough exercise. Even though I don't put in 20-hour workdays, I do keep to a routine and get exercise from cycling to and from work, and I do the occasional run at lunchtime. You can listen to this show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, subscribe if you've not done so. If you've already subscribed, thank you so much. Just one favor, share this with someone you know who would benefit from listening. You can also leave a rating and review. It helps others discover this show. Till next time, this is Conrad Chua on Changing Careers.